All right, brothers and sisters, uh, it's good to see your shining faces all full of rest from an extra hour of sleep or extra hour of something. Uh, this is where we are. We're in uh, Christianity and Liberalism Chapter 3, uh, the doctrine of God and man. Uh, and before we get going, uh, let me open us with a word of prayer. So please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that you would look kindly upon us this morning. Uh, we pray that as we wrestle through these doctrines of, of you, uh, doctrines of God and uh, doctrines of us, uh, of man, we pray that we would know more of, of you, know more of who you are and what you require of us. And we ask that we would uh, not merely understand, but that we would live out these doctrines in our lives uh, so that ours is not a, uh, an intellectual faith, uh, but a faith with hands and feet. Um, but Father, we pray that we would understand the Scriptures as you have revealed yourself in them, and that we would hold to them firmly, and we would not be tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine. And but Father, as we prepare ourselves to worship you, we pray that you would be preparing our hearts and minds. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, let me start out by saying, in this study, there are some hard things. This material is, is hard, and it's hard to understand. And there's a sense in which it should be. Uh, these are complex issues and doctrines that are high and, and uh, heavenly. When people say that God is not a person, when they say that Jesus taught the universal fatherhood of God, we should have a hard time understanding because that's just not true. But let me in encourage us this morning. Uh, let me try to give us some encouragement that we're not just reading this book so that we can have a better argument. We're not just reading this book because it's the 100th anniversary of Christianity and liberalism, even though it is, and it's a good excuse. But we're reading and trying to understand this book because we're in a spiritual battle. Some might ask, well, how is this help? How does this book help? It's just a book. It's not the Bible. Why don't we study the Bible? Well, we absolutely do believe that the Bible is sufficient for all of our uh, life and salvation. It's our only rule of faith and practice. But we can greatly benefit. We can greatly bolster our, our faith and, and bolster our, uh, our, our ability to fight the good fight by watching men of old wield the sword of the Spirit because we're in, we are in a spiritual battle. And this is our field. Our field of battle is doctrine and spiritual truths. Uh, Ephesians 6 says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, the cosmic powers of darkness, against the spiritual forces uh, of evil in the heavenly places. And let me just remind us, the temptation from the beginning has always been on the doctrinal level. Let me remind you of Satan's first temptation. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Is this a moral or a doctrinal temptation? How many doctrines is Satan attacking right here? He's attacking the sufficiency of God's word. Are you, Adam and Eve, going to live by someone else's command? He's attacking the goodness of God, God's character, theology proper. Does God really know what's best for his creatures? He's attacking the truthfulness of God's word. God said this, but that's really not true. You shall surely not die. It's attacking the doctrine of man. Creatures do not have to obey their creator. See, we've always been fighting a spiritual battle and a spiritual warfare. And if we are to be good soldiers, good Christian soldiers, we have to, we have to train ourselves. We have to be memorizing the scriptures. We have to understand the truth so that false doctrine cannot take a hold. We have to be training ourselves in doctrine so that when doubt comes knocking at our door, 
We're not going to let it in, but we're going to slam the door of God's promises in doubt's face. As a church, are we going to be like the Galatian church? Pastor John reminded us last week of how Paul was so surprised and, and even angry that the Galatians would so quickly turn away from the true gospel, from the true doctrine, and turn away to heterodoxy, that is, different doctrines. So let me encourage you this morning as we're in this doctrinal matter that you're training your souls. You're training your souls in the wisdom of God, which is the foolishness of man. Men do scoff at what we are doing in here, and the world is not going to understand because they don't understand the fight. They don't understand that Jesus already has conquered, and he has promised that to the one who holds fast until I come, to the one who conquers and keeps my work until the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and I will even give him the morning star. So, that brings us to Machen, Machen this morning. And let me just briefly review for us the argument. In chapter 1, we have our big goal, what we're trying to accomplish in this book. We're trying to clarify and define the controversy of our modern era. And Pastor David's lesson, this is the argument, uh, in Pastor David's lesson, the main thing Machen is trying to prove is that Christianity is not liberalism. And this is an issue worth fighting over. Sticking our head in the sand and ignoring these issues is not an option. And conservatives, as conservatives, this is a tendency we, we run to often. We just need our Bibles and, and just need to keep plugging, plodding along, and that'll be enough. But it's not. Modernism is like cancer. It ruins everything and infects everything. Uh, and we can see it particularly in, in the scientific method. The modern lust for this scientific method is applied to everything. If we cannot observe it, if we cannot test it and repeat it, then it didn't happen. Thus, we can throw out miracles. We can throw out every old doctrine that is not subjected to our standards. There's a sort of humanist pride here that masks that is masked behind pure object objectivity of the scientific method. We can subject everything to our science, and either it fits or we throw it out and reject it as a myth. And this is a problematic answer from Machen. Liberals respond by saying, we're separating religion and science, but Christianity is based on facts, real historical events. We cannot just give up these events just because our current science can't explain it. It's not an option. We must fight to maintain our commitment to a historical Christianity. This is where statements like Churchill's come from. Without victory, there can be no peace. Now, this is the hard fight, but it is the best way. It does mean new reform, new reformation in our churches. But it's a battle over our commitment to Christ. So, chapter 1 distinguishes Christianity from liberalism. They're not the same. They should not be considered together. But chapter 2... Machen lays out why doctrine is the backbone of Christianity. Pastor John led us to consider if we lose doctrine, if we lose doctrine, then we lose our faith. If we diminish doctrine, if we play it down, we lose our faith. And the idea that we don't want to give offense, that's not a, that's not a good enough reason to, to cut the edges off, to round off the sharp edges of the gospel. Because soon we'll lose things like total depravity. Maybe that's not so bad, but then we lose full atonement. We lose full payment for sins through Christ. We lose justification through faith alone. But, but through all this, the liberals actually do maintain 
two doctrines. They actually do want to espouse two things. They say we can reduce Christianity to two pillars. They want to believe in the fatherhood of God, and there's a universal fatherhood of God, and a universal brotherhood of man. They say we can we can whittle the gospel down to this. Not quite yet. Thus, liberal preachers are really just substituting one system of doctrine for another. But Paul dem- Machen demonstrates how Paul actually lives his life by doctrine. He lives, eats, sleeps, and breathes doctrine. Jesus Christ lives his life by doctrine. And we as his church, we are spurred on by a message, by a message that he is risen. And this is a hill that we, are, we will die on. It's doctrine that we will die for. <clears throat> so, at the end of chapter 2, page 55 of your books, Machen says, Christianity's chief rival is liberalism. And that is the point. At every point, liberalism contradicts Christianity. They're not the same. So this is where we are in the argument. The liberal religion calls people to be the best version of themselves, to look inside their hearts and, and just think the best of other people. Just forgive God, forgive people and feel God's presence, and that is enough for your spiritual lives. But Christianity is a religion not of affirmation. Christianity is a religion of the broken heart. Remember that. Christianity is the religion of mourning and grieving over actual sins against an actual God. So we have two points this morning, two doctrines that we're going to be looking at, God and man, God and man. But since we have two different religions, Christianity and liberalism, we're going to have opposite doctrines on each of these subjects. The liberal doctrine of God is is derived from our old friend Schleiermacher, and the Christian doctrine of God is derived from the revelation of God about himself, that is the Bible. So we have what the liberals say, which is not what the Christians say. And in our chapter, we almost feels like Machen is playing whack-a-mole, with the liberals. One argument that comes up against God, and Machen has to whack it. And then the liberals say something wrong about man, and Machen has to whack that. But the phrase I want us to, to keep in the back of our minds as we're going forward is that Christianity is an account of God saving man, of how God saved man. Right, so we're going to look at how liberalism undermines all of that, and Christianity upholds that. All right, but why are we starting with these two doctrines? Why start here? So we've set up, big picture, we've set up that Christianity is not liberalism, and now we're getting into the weeds, we're getting into the actual doctrines, but why start here? Our confession, our Westminster Confession, actually starts with Scripture. We start with special revelation, and there's a good reason for that, and ask me about it later. But if we look on page 57, Machen says that there are certain things that are non-negotiable. These are first-tier issues, hills to die on and standards to fly. Machen says, that Christianity gives an account of how God saved man, and we can agree on that. But before we can get to the gospel, there are two presuppositions that we have to hold. We have to know who God is. We have to know what man is. We have to know these two presuppositions. Now, goodness. Now, presupposition, presupposition is a belief that you get other beliefs from. It's something that you hold, and that dictates your other actions. Now, when my son will be born, I will presuppose that gravity will work. And so I will hold him in such a way that I will not drop him and, and hurt him. So I will use my presupposition to dictate my actions. Yes, that is the hope. But Machen is saying we have to presuppose both God and man before we can come to the gospel. 
The doctrine of God and man are the two great presuppositions of Christianity. This is a prerequisite. If we mess this up, if we don't understand God, if we don't understand man, then we can't understand how God saved man. Also, another reason to start here is John Calvin starts here. And why not follow John Calvin? The sum of uh, nearly all the wisdom that we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. We cannot get this wrong. Liberalism is diametrically opposed to Christianity, and so if, as we're studying these things, we have to read up, otherwise we will end up harming ourselves. But we start here with theology proper. Now, theology proper is the doctrine of God. Now, you might say, well, I know what theology is. Theology, doctrine of God, study of God. But let's put ourselves in Machen's shoes for just a second. And this is a brief historical aside. But in 1923, uh, theology was the preeminent science, or it was the preeminent science of all education. Let me say that again. It was the chief science. All other sciences under and subservient to theology. So we can only do math. We can only do biology because God has created it. So it is under our doctrine of God. But we say theology proper because we are studying God himself. God is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end, and nothing exists outside of His decrees and, and good pleasure. And so if we do not get this right, again, we do not have a, a faith. But the first thing that the liberals say about God is that He's unknowable. He's too, he's too distant. He's too other. He hasn't revealed Himself. They say no. They say God is not knowable. He has not revealed Himself. All that we need to have a robust doctrine of God is to feel God's presence. Doctrine is divisive, therefore we shouldn't have it. And this should remind us of Schleiermacher. Machen is clearly taking a stab at, at the liberals here. And he's saying that if we give over, if we give over the doctrine of God, then all of our morals go too. It's just a, a shifting sea of, of this doctrine and that doctrine. The effect is to say that our morals are determined by culture, by a majority consensus. Our moral code is just a reflection of what we all collectively think together. And so as, as follows, our doctrine of God is just what we all think about God collectively together. And as a side note, uh, biblical scholars today want to say that the Bible is just a reflection of ancient Israel, how ancient Israel thought about God, and therefore it shouldn't apply to us. But let's apply this for just a second. What would happen if the Bible changed with history? What would happen if God changed with history? What would we say about God if, if you lose a loved one, if you lose your wife, your child, your husband? Is God now mean and capricious? Well, that's what your feelings tell you about God. But what, what would be our doctrine of God if, if you lose a debate uh, to a nerdy atheist in your classroom and you're humiliated? Is God now apathetic, distant? Well, that's what your feelings would tell you. If our emotions dictate our doctrine, then we're at the mercy of our doctrine, uh, the mercy of our emotions, and not at the mercy of the God who does not change. If we get our doctrine of God wrong, then, then we lose our basis of religion. But wait, perhaps, perhaps, liberals say, we can know God only through Jesus. Perhaps we can know God only through Jesus. And this sounds good, right? This is a good Sunday school answer. 
On the bottom of page 58, though, you see there the paragraph break. Meachin says, not so fast, not so fast. If we are content with red-letter Christianity, just what Jesus said, if it's only me and Jesus, only me and what Jesus says to me, then we're effectively denying both special and general revelation. Romans 1, there we go, Romans 1, verse 20, uh, says, For his invisible attributes, that is, things about God, his character, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. The liberal conception of God is too narrow, Machen says. Psalm 19, Romans 1 say that God is shouting His presence. He's shouting His knowability, His power, His glory in creation. From the beginning, God is knowable. But more than just David and Paul, Machen points to Jesus' own teaching. He says, all right, you want just the words of Jesus, I'll give you the words of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus points to the lilies of the field. Look, God is caring. God is loving. He is tender and kind. He cares for the lilies of the valley. Jesus points to the moral law. God is holy. You can know God is holy because He's revealed Himself in the law. Jesus points to all of the Old Testament as the revelation of God to His people. So Machen says, we cannot say God did not leave Himself without a witness, an abundance of witnesses to Himself. Excuse me. Uh, as a fun little aside, Machen actually leverages logic here to say that we cannot say Jesus is God at all if we don't know God before Jesus. That's on page 59. But the liberals say, again, another mole comes up, whack. The liberals say that Jesus only had a practical view of God. He only had a moral and ethical view. He only taught good how to be a good person. He never taught doctrine. He never taught things to divide people. But Machen, teaches that, Machen says that Jesus teaches a relationship with the Father. And this relationship with the Father is never so vague and so impersonal as to be merely practical. It's on page 60. On the contrary, Jesus knew God personally. And therefore, if personally, he knew him doctrinally. If, if I say I know my wife, but I don't know that she's pregnant, I wouldn't really, I wouldn't really know her. If I say that I know God, and I don't know that he's holy. I don't really know him. The liberals try to say that there's then a false dichotomy between science and religion. Science and religion are not the same, and therefore they should not be uh, overlapped. What is true in science does not necessarily have to be true in religion. Religion is just about feelings. Science is just about facts. What Machen says on page 61, this is towards the top, that true religion can never agree with this dichotomy because things cannot be true in religion and false in philosophy or science. Because again, remember our theology, our big tier, God created everything. God is truth. So if we're studying science and something is untrue in religion but true in science, then our science is wrong, not God's revelation. But even as the liberals want their cake, they want to eat it too. They want to have some doctrine. Doctrine is divisive, but they have to have some doctrine to still preach. The liberal preachers still have to have something to say. So they say, we're going to whittle Christianity down to this one little thing, the universal doctrine of God, the fatherhood of God. And this is a universal fatherhood. 
Now we can say this is a very lofty perspective of God. The fatherhood of God is, is something that we hold dear. Uh, John Murray says in his Redemption Accomplished and Applied that we would do much better as Christians if we valued our sonship, our daughter, our daughtership in God much more. But the problem is the fatherhood of God is not exclusive to Christianity. The Vikings have this view of an all-father, and the Vikings are about as pagan as it gets. India has their Buddha. Native Americans have their creative father figure. And Machen is, is dubious that the liberals would attach their theology to such a leaky vessel. But modern men are, are impressed by this doctrine, and they do see it correctly in Jesus' teaching. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray to the Father who is in heaven. But the problem is, the problem is, is they ignore all doctrine that men gave their lives for. This is on page 62. In the first century, men were giving their lives over the exclusivity of God. We worship God alone and not another man, even if he is Caesar. And we will not sacrifice to him. We will not burn incense to him. We will not bow down before him. We worship God alone. In the Reformation, men gave their lives over the exclusivity of Christ. We are saved through Christ alone and through faith alone, through grace alone to the glory of God alone and not through any works of us. In effect, liberals are saying, we want to hold up this fatherhood of God without the price that is, it took to, uh, to get it. They're saying we want the fatherhood of God without considering the fact Christ had to die in order for us to be called sons. Machen is responding to this universal fatherhood by saying it's actually not found in Jesus' teaching, the universal part. The liberals say, oh, but it's in the prodigal son. Not so fast. The prodigal son was a parable given to Pharisees who were rejected by Jesus as sons of the devil. So is Jesus, uh, is, is Jesus saying God is father uh, to them? No, they say we are sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, you are sons of the devil. The prodigal son shows that not all who are in the church are, are truly sons. Oh, got to keep up. The Sermon on the Mount, then. Next, it's in the Sermon on the Mount. The universal fatherhood is somewhere in here, they say. But actually, this is actually worse. The fatherhood of God actually destroys and undermines the doctrine of common grace. The doctrine of common grace is that God sends the rain on the just and the unjust, whether or not they deserve it or not. God has care and love, and, and He sustains His creation. But the wonder about the doctrine of common grace is that God cares for those who are both His children and not His children. And so if you say God is Father of all, then you don't have a doctrine of common grace. The fatherhood of God is a familial title. It's, a, it's an attitude of God towards his, his family, towards His sons and daughters bought and purchased with the blood of Christ, not towards all creation. It is true that God is the author of creation. He's the sustainer. He's the creator. But he's not in an intimate relationship through the redemptive blood of Christ with everyone. It does not mean that God is equally the Savior of all. The best thing we can say about the universal fatherhood of God is then that it's just a vague natural religion. The New Testament speaks about the fatherhood of God only in relationship with those who've been brought into the household of faith by the blood of Christ. But liberals say, you're being too narrow. You're being too narrow in your gospel call. 
But we answer that the gospel is a, is a free call to any who will hear and believe. All tribes, tongues, and nations will come and bow the knee to Christ. All will be uh, represented in heaven. <clears throat> but Christianity is not content with vagueness. We want more. We need more intimacy with God, and we need to know who God is. We cannot be satisfied with a mere emotional gratitude to a God who cannot be known. All right, so in our sparring session, Machen has been toying with the liberals up until now, but now he's about to give a, a, a destructive blow. This is the real fatal punch. The liberals think that God is, uh, God is unknowable, but they've lost sight of the very core teaching of Christianity about God. The one attribute about God that is paramount, that even the demons get, is the transcendency of God, His awfulness. Now, we update this for modern English, and we say awesomeness. But there is a sense in which God is terrible in His greatness. He is, uh, when He comes near, He undoes creation. When He comes near, the mountains shake. When He comes near, we say that we are undone. There is an awesome transcendence about God. From the beginning to the end, the Bible is concerned to set forth the awful gulf separates creator, creature from the Creator. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from God. Not a hair of our head exists without His knowledge and power. God is imminent in the world not because He's tied to it or bound to the earth's uh, limits, but God is the free Creator and upholder of it. The liberals say that God is just a, a term for the natural process of the world. The liberals look at the view of fate and and the Indian view of karma, and they call that God. The, the life cycles, the, the water cycles, the weather patterns, they say that's God. But this is just Star Wars spiritualism. This is just a Gnostic heresy reawakened and polished up and put, uh, put some modern, modern lingo on it. They say that our lives are part of God, that our souls are connected to God, and we are spiritually looking for unity and world peace. That's what we want. But Machen rips the curtain back and he calls it what it is, and this is on page 67. He says, this is pantheism. And even if the liberals don't like that title, their religion is at least pantheizing. All right, now, now Machen's just showing off. What, what do we mean by pantheizing? Well, if we believe that God is universal, we put God in everything. If we make God to be some force that drives nature, then we lose the personhood of God. He doesn't have attributes. He doesn't have character. He doesn't have a person that can be offended. If we confess the fatherhood of God, then we've just gender-swapped the materialist doctrine for, of uh, Mother Earth. If we indulge in vagueness in our doctrine, then we're left with nothing but a pantheizing uh, theology. But now we move on to the doctrine of man. Woohoo! Machen now tackles, tacks this on at the end of our chapter uh, as a brief logical conclusion, because if we get our crea Creator wrong, then we will get the creature wrong. We will inevitably mess up man. Now the logic goes, if God is pantheistic, then we creatures are without limit because we are connected to God. So when we use our reason, we are without limit. Our emotions can't be questioned because we are connected to God. We're without limits. Uh, we're denying the creator-creature distinction. And we're elevating man. But what we're really going after, what we're really targeting with our universal 
brotherhood of man, with our exaltation of man. So we're after the doctrine of sin. If we're part of God, then we're limitless and we cannot sin. Now, remember back to our phrase, Christianity is an account of how God saved man. By this point, it's completely undone. There's nothing left. God is not a person and therefore is not holy. Man is not limited and therefore is not different from God. And there's no sin to be saved from. Every word, every word of, uh, of our phrase is gone. God, we don't have a God, we don't have salvation, and we don't have man. We don't have a correct view of man. There's no gospel left in liberalism. There's nothing left to hang on to. The consciousness of sin was formerly the starting point of preaching, but that's gone. Conversions happened when people asked, what must I do to be saved? But now people say, you just do you. You're perfect the way you are. Just get in touch with your inner self. Affirmations of sinners is now the religion uh, of today, and gospel confrontation uh, is going uh, out the door. Thus, if we believe the world is full of good people, then we can believe that the world's good, evil can become overcome by the world's good. I'm behind. And what we're left with is just this ethereal imagine. People are basically good. We need to get people in touch with their better selves, and that is how we will be saved. We don't need any help from an outside source. We don't need help from God. Now, Machen indulges this question. Goodness, I'm sorry. How did it come to this? How did this happen? Well, his answer is a bit more contextualized, and he answers the war, World War I. Now, in 2023, not all of us are thinking about the effects of World War I on today, but the pattern is the same. It's the same old tactic. During World War I, Machen says, the nation was collectively thinking about the sins of others. We were thinking about those people over there and how they're evil and how we need to go stop them. And in so doing, we've lost sight of the sins of our own heart. The answer to social evils is to collectively band together and defeat evil. And this collectivism obscures individual personal guilt. We cannot be blind to the, the dark spiritual forces at work here. Satan would love nothing better than for us to be consumed with the sins of other people rather than the sins of our own heart. And allow me to make this just a bit worse. In 2023, <clears throat> Machen is looking out of the landscape of Western civilization, and he's saying already Western civilization is pagan. Silently, seductively, Americans have slipped into paganism with our universal doctrine of God, with our denial of sin, and with our hope in man, with our exaltation of the ability of man. Machen says, 75 years ago, from his standpoint, so the 1840s, Western civilization was predominantly Christian. But today, it's predominantly pagan with Christian language. So Machen helpfully reestablishes the issue. There are two roads. On the one hand, we have paganism with the unaided help of human flourishing. That is their hope. On the other hand, we have Christianity, which is the, the religion of the broken heart. Now, Machen does say Christian, Christians do not have the end goal of just be breast, beating their breast and, and saying, woe is me, but we have to start there. We have to start there. We have to start with a, a, a consciousness of sin. Without the consciousness of sin, the whole gospel is nothing but an idle tale 
And this is pretty grim. This is a pretty grim situation, even for Machen, even a hundred years ago. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is to preach the law of God, uncompromised and unadulterated. Jesus' example with this exact situation was to exegete the law. You remember the Pharisees had created this system, this legalistic system of adding to the law of God. And what they were really doing is making the law attainable. They were saying, I can really keep the law because I have created these extra laws for me to keep, and I can keep those, so therefore I'm good. Jesus comes in and says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, if you have hated your brother, you've already committed murder. He exegetes the law. He preaches the law to people like this. So we can preach the law and resist the impulse to downplay, to lessen sin, to make light of sin. Because that's an expedient way to get people into church, isn't it? It's an expedient way to, to get people to come into church and to fill up our pews. Just make light of sin. It's a little sin. It's all right. Just come on in. We're all sinners. We're all human here. But it's through the little sins that Satan gets entrance into our lives. But in addition to preaching the word, the rank and file of the church have to do their part in proclaiming the gospel by living it out. The church must be a, a, a shining light, the salt of the earth a city on a hill. But conviction of sin is, is a mystery. And, and he says that only the Holy Spirit can produce this. Conviction of sin is something that is worked in the heart, and the Holy Spirit is the one who does that work. And so let's pray. Machen says, let's pray. Let's not have a religion without the Holy Spirit. And the modern preacher is trying to get men into church while still clutching at their pride and avoiding conviction of sin. But we trust and pray in the Holy Spirit, who's been doing this for uh, for centuries. But I think we can leave off this chapter with a challenge. A challenge. Are we going to stand firm in, in our convictions? Are we going to hold on to our, our doctrine of God? Um, there are many things pulling at us to, to just don't say that. Just don't say that God is totally holy. Just don't mention the doctrine of hell. Don't don't mention these offensive things. Just, just continue on to preach the love and the, the universal fatherhood of God. Well, will we let go our, our firm convictions? Will we continue to worship God as our creator, someone who is totally other and totally different from us, one who is not like, a, like us and, and not in our image, but we are in his image? Or will we try to imagine God in, in our modern context? Machen gives a helpful analogy at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, when someone insults or, or misrepresents even our friend, let alone our spouse, we become angry and we rise to their defense. Well, here at the end of the chapter, Machen challenges us. Will we rise to the defense of God? God is misrepresented and, and, and even lied about. He's insulted and, and belittled. He's made down to be on our level or an impersonal uh, force. God is misrepresented even in his, in his church. And are we going to be apathetic about this? Will we give in to the pressure to exalt ourselves, deny sin, and to let the law fall by the wayside? Well, this is a, a hard chapter, albeit a, a shorter one. Let me encourage us to, to keep reading, to keep studying, to keep training our souls in, in these eternal issues. If we give over our theology to the spirit of the age, if we become liberal in our theology, if we make God small, 
if we make ourselves big, then then we are not Christian. Well, may God help us to, to remain faithful. Well, let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and that we have a true, unchanging word that will not fall away. Um, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us perfectly in Christ, that you are a God who is both the just and the justifier. And so, Father, as we come into your courts of of praise into your courts of worship this morning, we pray that we would be singing your praises based on your scriptures, based on who you are, for you are our God and we are your people. And we pray that you would look favorably upon our worship and accept our worship in the name of Christ. Amen.